Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Tributes continue to pour in for Tanzania's late president, John Magufuli. And top Zimbabwean MP leaves at Nelson Chamisa's MDC alliance. In economics news, former Bain partner testifies at South Africa's state capture inquiry. And in sports news, Chad disqualified from Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, for Channel Africa in Kinshasa in the DRC, I'm Jean-Noël Bamweze. Stay informed on the latest developments about COVID-19. Visit the World Health Organization's website to get more information. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Congo Brazzaville's President Denise Sasungisu has won re-election by a landslide. With 89% of the vote, the country's interior minister has announced the main opposition candidate, Guy Bryce Buffett Kulelas, who died on Sunday, garnered 8%. He was suffering from COVID-19. President Sasungesu, who was 77 years old, has ruled the country for 37 years. He's been in power since 1979, except for a five-year period after losing elections in 1992. Exit polls in Israel's general election in less than two years suggest that the Lukert party led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could win the most seats but will not win a parliamentary majority, the BBC's Tom Bateman reports. This has been Israel's try-again election. That's exactly what the voters have done, gone back to the polls for the fourth time in two years. And once again, if the exit polls are to be believed, they have returned the same kind of result, which is inconclusive. Those forecasts are suggesting that both the uh, bloc that opposes Mr Netanyahu, wants to oust him from government, and the right-wing bloc that supports him, neither of them have a clear path to victory. But it is suggesting that Mr Netanyahu has the political upper hand, that the horse trading that may now commence will give him the advantage. The rebel administration in eastern Libya has officially handed over power to the country's new unity government based in Tripoli. A handover ceremony took place yesterday in Libya's second city of Benghazi, which has been the headquarters of the eastern administration. A new government of national unity, which is backed by the United Nations, was sworn in last week in Tripoli. 
Kenya has run out of ICU beds as the country deals with a surge in COVID-19 cases. Kenya Medical Practitioners, Pharmacists and Dentists Union says health workers were among those admitted at various hospitals across the country. Several doctors have been sharing the experiences on social media describing heartbreaking scenes they are witnessing in hospitals across the country. Kenya's Director General for Health Patrick Amuth told a media briefing on Tuesday that a national study had found the presence of coronavirus variants first detected in South Africa and the UK. The Pentagon says it has received an internal request to house unaccompanied child migrants to military facilities in Texas. It's not clear how many children will be accommodated. The BBC's David Willis has more. This is a request to the Pentagon from the U.S. Department of Health and Social Services to make available space at two U.S. military bases near the border in Texas, one in El Paso, one in San Antonio, to help cope with this extraordinary influx of unaccompanied children coming across at the rate, it said, of about 500 a day. Now, um, there are shelters that are being overwhelmed, apparently, because of this, and that's led to a lot of these unaccompanied children being housed in jail-like conditions. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. It's 7.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The insurgent group of murderous Fulani herdsmen have made an attempt on the life of Benue State Governor Samuel Otom for the third time. The president of the National Association of Fulani says the governor's opposition to open grazing is the reason his group is seeking to take the likes of the outspoken governor out. For quite a long time now, Benui State has suffered mass killings for which the group has claimed responsibility, while Autumn and many other concerned Nigerians continue to request that President Buhari should declare the Mieti Allah, which is the parent body of the Fulani ethnic group from other West African countries operating in Nigeria, a terrorist group. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe has more. Right from 2016, when the clashes between herdsmen and farmers assumed a dangerous dimension, many state governments in Nigeria adopted laws which will help to preserve the lives and property of their subjects as well as help the herdsmen adopt ranching, a modern method of animal husbandry, as against the age-long system which meant herding cattle and food from place to place. The adoption of the law prohibiting open grazing in Benue State has caused its sleepless nights because of unprovoked attack on citizens by herders who felt aggrieved by the law which the state government's promised to implement, having been overwhelmed by the activities and atrocities of armed Fulani herdsmen. There is general insecurity and this is being prepared by herdsmen. I have made it a petition to the presidency and to all security agencies before that Mayatiala must be arrested. These are people who have taken responsibility that they have killed, they maimed, they raped, and do all sorts of atrocities. And yet their leadership is in Abuja and nobody is confronting them. 
But the reality is here. Why is the federal government being silenced about this full animal? When will the federal government come out and criticize and arrest his men carrying AK-47? How many times have the presidency come out to condemn that full men are carrying AK-47 all over the place? Are we second citizens in this country? After he waited for the federal government to take action against the murderous Fulani gang and there seems to be no response, the state governor, Sam Oton, questioned the reluctance of Abuja to tackle the issues raised by Nigerians over the atrocities of the killer headsmen. Up to today, I'm still waiting for the federal government to proscribe Mayati and designate them as a terrorist organization. 2016, when we started the prohibition of open grazing and provision for ranching law here in Benway State. They came out that once we start implementation, they were going to kill. Our law does not have any conflict with the constitution of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. This stance of Governor Autumn is seen by the Fulanese as opposition to their interests and the leader of the Fulani did not hide his hatred as he insisted that the law which prohibits open grazing should be repealed for there to be peace. In an address after their meeting in Yola last week, the Fulani national leader Abdullahi Bodejo told journalists that Autumn is the problem of the Fulanese. In Fulani, particularly, we have a problem. The governor of Benin said carry anti-grazing law. We are calling Governor Autumn to just ban that anti-grazing law to bring back the peace for the state. Autumn is already hating every Fulani is being an anti-grazing law to pursue them from the state. What is clear is that about four days after expressing this position, the Benin state governor was attacked on his farm by armed men whom he described as Fulani and members of Mieti Allah, who had earlier vowed to assassinate him at their Yola meeting. A few days ago, the media were washed with the community or the statement from the Fulani Mayati Allah who met in uh, Yola. Uh, that is where they met in 2006. And they came up with a statement singling me out as the only person who is creating problems for the entire Fulani race in this country. I was targeted for elimination. And this is not the first time that these people say they were going to capture me alive and give me gradual killing. To avoid a situation of this nature, a former director of the state security service, Dennis Amakri, says some people are failing in their duty of application of the rules of the law, which prohibits the bearing of assault rifles and other sophisticated weapons by individuals because terrorism is now coming nearer home to the elites. When it happened to Zulu, in the northeast, when his convoy was attacked, a lot of people didn't take it seriously. But this one again, when it happened the first time and now the third, and of course the governor has cried out. And uh, I think uh, it's high time we deal with it because it's coming nearer home. You know, when ordinary people are kidnapped or attacked on the road, politicians come and make comments and it dies there. I still am worried about the day when a governor, a sitting governor, will be kidnapped. And then, because that is a protected person, and how about unprotected civilians? Once beaten, twice shy. So goes the saying. After three attempts on his life, Governor Sam Autumn called for the arrest of the killers and pointed out where they are believed to be hiding in the forest. He says, if they are not arrested, Nigeria could well become like Mali or even Libya. If I can't go to the farm as governor, then who else can go to farm? These 
set of Fulani men who come from Niger, from Mali, from Chad, from Senegal. They have destroyed Mali completely. Nothing is happening there. They have destroyed Libya. They have destroyed several African countries with their aggression and think that they will come here and destroy Nigeria. I want to call on Mr. President. I want to call on the security agencies to fish these people out. They are in the forest between Makudi and Abinti. And they are coming out to commit atrocities, evil, rape women, kill our people, maim them, destroy our farmlands. The war against insurgents in Nigeria is being fought on different fronts, which include the incessant clashes between headsmen and farmers across Nigeria, a development which has resulted in the loss of lives, destruction of farms, and the sacking of people from their ancestral homelands by the headers who openly go about with sophisticated weapons despite government's regulation on bearing of arms. From Lagos, I am Collins Nusato Ingwe for Channel Africa News. With just two days before the late Tanzanian President John Pombe Joseph Magufuli's burial, Tanzanians living in Rwanda together with their Rwandan counterparts have once again expressed their grief for the fallen leader, with some even referring to him as one of the contemporary Pan-Africanists. On Monday, regional presidents flocked to Tanzania's capital, Dodoma, to bid farewell to Magufuli, whose burial is expected on Thursday this week. From Kigali, Silvanas Karamera reports. The big number of Rwandans have continued to grieve the death of late president of Tanzania, John Pombe Joseph Magufuli, following his sudden death last week in Tanzania. His death a week ago has been on the spotlight, especially on social media and on personal conversation. In Kigali, majority Rwandans believe President Magufuli was a true friend of Rwanda, recalling his first visit to Rwanda in April 2016, just five months after he assumed office as a president in Tanzania. With just two days to go for his burial, some Tanzanians living in Rwanda, together with their Rwandan counterparts, have expressed their grief. I'm still surprised and can't believe either that we have lost a great leader like Magufuli. He has done a lot for us as Tanzanians. We shall miss him. He was everything to us. He was very tough on fighting corruption and other types of mess that had become a culture in the Tanzanian system. He had a deep commitment to public service. So I would say we've lost the president whose ambitions were not only for Tanzanians but also for Africans. Gloria Gaba is one of those Rwandans that for the last one week have been grieving the death of President Magufuli. I asked her why she's been in this mood all along. Well, even though it happened a few days ago, it's still heartbreaking when one thinks about it because as a Rwandan, first of all, but also secondly as a Rwandan with a family in Tanzania, it's sad that we've lost such a friend to Rwanda, to our country, but also a visionary uh, in terms of Africa's development and also uniting African countries and working for the better of the continent. Talking of his love to Africa, one day when he was addressing the multitude in the uh, central part of Tanzania in the Tabora region, specifically in Nzega district, way back, he said that uh, he had, he had only gone to Europe during his studies and he had never gone back even when he became the president. And he said that he wanted to build Tanzania so that Europeans be the ones come to Tanzania to, 
to see the miraculous activities and development that were to be taking place in Tanzania. Going by this bit of uh, late President Magufuli, uh, what could be your take on that? First of all, as Africans, we have this notion or we believe that for us to be great at uh, something, we have to perhaps get training uh, at, in the European countries. We have to, we tend to believe that the European countries are superior to us. I think it's it's a it's a personal decision, and I think it's a personal decision that he took, but with the with the with the larger picture of having Africa at heart and knowing that Africa can do the same things that European countries can do, and perhaps even do them better. Ever since the news of his death broke out on last week, uh, we we continue to see. Um, uh, aggrieving people, uh, both Tanzanians and Rwandans here in Rwanda, especially flocking the social media, exposing uh, their grievances uh, following his person. Uh, in your assessment, why do you think that even those people that have never been to Tanzania are continuing aggrieving Mr. Magufuli? It's not rocket science that President Mag the late President Magufuli was an incredible leader. Yeah, it doesn't take someone to have gone to Tanzania to fi to figure out that he was a great leader, because his work spoke for itself. You know, he didn't have to attend major conferences to other countries. He didn't have to um, he didn't have to actually um, expose himself that much for people to know that he was a great leader. His work alone spoke for himself, spoke for him, and I believe that this is uh, one of the biggest reasons that. Uh, different people on social media in in Rwanda and even across the continent are feeling like there's such a big loss that is ha that has happened to the African country, because he did he did actually work for his country and it's it's evident it's not just theoretical. President Program of Rwanda appeared on Twitter and on state television shortly after Magufuli's death was announced, admitting that President Magufuli was not only steadfast but Pan-African leader. President Magufuli was uh, steadfast, uh, Pan-African, and a friend uh, to our country, who understands in solidarity with uh, Tanzania and uh, with President Samia Suluhu Hassan at this uh, difficult moment. President John Pombe Magufuli's body is expected to be laid to rest in his hometown of Chato, Geita region, in northwestern part of Tanzania, on Thursday this week. On Monday, a dozen of African presidents converged in Dodoma, Tanzania's capital, to give their last farewell to the man, most of whom referred to as resilient and contemporary Pan-Africanist of their time. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel, and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Nelson Chamisa, leader of Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, has broken away from his traditional silent engagement amid attacks from ZANU-PF. Chamisa 
surprised the nation on Tuesday as he issued a statement on his party's website, announced and disclosed his party's new direction. The youthful opposition leader has been accused of being docile following the historic Supreme Court judgment last year that crippled his leadership ability. Simon Machema reports from Harare. Zimbabweans woke up on Tuesday to a surprised, hard-hitting message by the main opposition leader Nelson Chamisa, who appeared to be urging Zimbabweans to prepare for the 2023 elections. Chamisa, whose leadership style was being questioned following the silent approach towards the Supreme Court judgment in March 2020, has risen with a fresh start. In the face of severe attacks by the ruling ZANU-PF, jointly with another MDC outfit, Chamisa remained silent, and that infuriated many Zimbabweans. Several people in Zimbabwe regard MDC Alliance, led by Nelson Chamisa, as the alternative party to vote for after the ruling ZANU-PF. But the silence led many people into believing without the late Morgan Changrai, MDC is now dead. On one hand, the party was partly crippled by the so-called parliamentarian recallings that were done by Douglas Monzora while purporting to be representing the entire MDC family. In his surprise message, in which he was answering questions on social media, Chamisa had this to say. For a lot of you, I've complained about uh, the MDC not being that cyber active. A lot of you have complained about us not being on the ground. Now, let me just tell you this thing. MDC is an organic party, an 18-year-old party, a party that is grassroots structures, a party that is a footprint across the whole country, a party that is in every village, in every suburb, in every township, a party that you would say is in every community, at every household level. For that reason, that party is everywhere. We have everywhere structures, and you go to Gokwe, you find us there. You go to Cholochi, you find us there. You go to Gwanda, we are there. You go to Manikaland in Chipinge, we are there in Chimaniman, we are there in Nyanga, we are there in Mashonaland Central, we are there in Mash East. So a lot of people have said, ah, no, we are seeing more people being visible, and oh, most of you guys are not as visible as we would want. Yes, we appreciate that feedback. We have now managed to up our hands. We are working on making sure that, number one, we are on the cyber platform so that we engage you on the social platforms. We've made it sure that we are on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on all the social platforms, Instagram also included. While ZANU-PF is visible and was busy even during the COVID-19 lockdown holding its party meetings, MDC Alliance has been conducting door-to-door meetings. Unlike ZANU-PF officials, any MDC Alliance leader who was found holding meetings was jailed for contravening the COVID-19 lockdown regulations. As the opposition, Chamisa's party had to vice a new and clear way of dealing with selective application of the law. Chamisa added, We are also uh, subterraneanly available through our retail politics underground, making sure that we are on the ground. Uh, talking to people, engaging grassroots through our door-to-door programs, our Chakachaya program, which is basically a campaign. We are saying we need to meet heart-to-heart, person-to-person, house-to-house, talk to you, village-to-village, farm-to-farm. We need to engage all the Zimbabweans and to say, there is your role. You need to play a pivotal role in terms of making sure that we achieve change in this country. 
Meanwhile, Jamisa touched on the rawness of the political problem in Zimbabwe with regards to voting and rigging. The MDC alliance leader urged Zimbabweans to register to vote but appeared to be contradicting statements that elections are rigged most of the times in the country. Chamisa said the rigging utterances are made by people whose aim is to discourage Zimbabweans from voting in the future. On one hand, Chamisa also blamed those who are not voting at all or those shying away as part of the country's problem. He added, Most people are actually not bothering to register to vote. Most people actually think that, ah, no, the election is rigged. Why should we bother? That is all propaganda churned out of some propaganda machineries to make sure that you don't participate in voting. We want you to vote because, you know, ZANU-PF has been supported by three categories of people. The first category of people who support ZANU-PF are people who are benefiting from ZANU-PF as a government and people who are obviously positively saying they need ZANU-PF in government because they are benefiting something. But the second category of people are people who do not believe in ZANU-PF, but they are so scared of engaging ZANU-PF, so they are afraid of their shambuk or their stick or their terror tactics. So they are then in a macho way, you know, um, muffled and forced to vote for ZANU-PF. That's the second category of ZANU-PF support. But the third one, which is probably the category to which most of you belong, is the category of people who do not vote people who do not register to vote, people who do not care, you are supporting the current government. You are supporting the status quo. By not participating, you are a biggest, the biggest voter. In Arari, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchema. Legal experts in South Africa say Afroforum's request to cross-examine President Sul Ramaphosa at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry is permitted in terms of the law. On Monday, the Civil Rights Group filed a formal application to the Commission requesting to subpoena the President to appear before Justice Raymond Zondo. It says Ramaphosa was the chairperson of the ANC's CADA Deployment Committee from 2013 to 2016 and claims that several individuals who are accused of corruption and state capture were appointed to key positions on the ground of their loyalty to the ANC. Abongile Dumako has more. Lobby group Afri Forum is gunning for ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa's head. The organization has written to the State Capture Commission of Inquiry requesting to subpoena him over the party's CATA deployment policy. They claim that the president was at the helm of the CATA deployment committee when key appointments in government were made. The policy, which has been implemented by the ANC and its alliance partners, has drawn criticism, with some citing that it permits the abuse of power. Here is Afriforum's Ernest Royce. It seems to us that various individuals who are now being accused of corruption and state capture were actually appointed after they've been discussed at this committee. So if there's one person in this country who can shed light on this, it would be President Sir Ramaphosa. Given that he's the president of the ruling party, and also given that he was the chairperson of the committee that made these decisions. But one legal expert, Kasper Bedenhorst, is of the view that there is nothing untoward about the lobby group's request to the commission. In terms of Rule 36 of the commission's rules, the person that's been implicated by another may apply to cross-examine that witness. That is, however, not an inherent right, it's a discretionary right granted by the chairman. So you have to apply uh, to, to seek leave to cross-examine that particular person. That's however if you've been implicated. 
in terms of rule nine of the rules, uh, if you believe that there is a person that can provide valuable evidence to the commission and for its purposes, you may apply in writing uh, to the commission and state grounds why you believe that that person's evidence will be of value to the commission. Now, Afri Forum wants to question Ramaphosa on individuals who had served in the government or various state-owned entities like Brian Murlefe, Dudumieni, Pravin Kodan, Lakimondana, Jeff Khadebe, Tulima Donzela, among others. Meanwhile, efforts to get a comment from the ANC were fruitless. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. It's 7.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. At 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, Congo Brazzaville's President Denis Sassungesu has won re-election by a landslide with 89% of the vote. Exit polls in Israel's general election in less than two years suggest that the Lukert party led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could win the most seats but will not win a majority, a parliamentary majority. And the Pentagon says it has received an internal request to house unaccompanied child migrants to military facilities in Texas. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you. And the State Capture Commission kicked off the week with South African Revenue Service-related evidence. The commission heard how the consulting firm secured various multi-million rand contracts with government institutions including the South African Revenue Services. The Commission also listened to former SARS Commissioners Tom Moyani's cross-examination of Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon Tsepomungwai reports. Former partner at Bain and Company South Africa, Ethel Williams, has told the State Capture Commission that attempts by the company to capture the state started under its new managing partner, Vittorio Massoni, back in 2010. Williams told the commission that he was concerned about Masoni's behavior and decided to contact head office to investigate him. However, Bain Global continued to endorse Masoni in his position, a move that forced him to resign. Bain was employed by former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani to establish a restructuring model of the South African Revenue Division at a cost of 164 million rand. Concerned enough that we contacted myself and Mr. Moorman, contacted um, the London office and, and asked them to come and investigate what was happening in South Africa. I personally doubted Mr. Masoni's ethics. I doubted whether he was honest. I doubted whether he could trust what he was saying. Um, I got to a point where one of my clients said to me, if you bring that person along again, Apple, we won't speak to you. And we were convinced that Mr. Masoni was going to be relieved of his duties, but he wasn't. Um, and so the way we interpret interpreted that was it was Bain Global basically endorsing Mr. Massoni's behavior. So much so that pretty soon after that, I, I chose to leave the business. William says Bain paid 3.6 million rand a year to two performing artists for strategic advice on procurement and to introduce the company to political leaders. According to Williams, Ember Bright, a company that was co-owned by film producer Dumandlovu and musician Mandla Ganuzulu, received the highest fee usually paid to former CEOs and public officials to give advice. Williams says Bain was also expected to pay a success fee as part of the contract. The, the advisors are typically ex-CEOs of companies, former public officials um, or former Bain partners like myself. That's a typical profile of, of, of the advisor. And even with that highly skilled, experienced profile of advisor, being paid 3.6 million rand a year is not what Bain typically pays um, those advisors. So already we're talking about getting advice, which you normally get from experienced CEOs, you're getting from artists, and you're paying these artists far more than you pay those experienced CEOs. Also at the State Capture Commission, Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon has defended himself against a slew of claims leveled against him by former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani's legal counsel, Dalim Bofu. Bofu says Gordon should face four criminal charges, including the establishment of a rogue unit at SARS and his failure to report Moyani to the police for his role in state capture. Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo had to intervene a number of times when things got heated between the two. The question was whether I had reported any corrupt activity in relation to the PRECA uh, Act. So he refers to the Act. And when are you going to answer the question? So I'm saying did that you, there was not... Or did you not report the matter to the police? State capture 
in legislation is not defined uh, as a crime. Person, really, I have to intervene. You might be specific. Did you report the matter to the police or not? Report so, what? The matter of Mr. Moyane's alleged involvement in state capture. That's what the question is. They have to be singular acts of, of corruption, which at that point in time I couldn't identify. No, I didn't uh, report it because I didn't see it within the purview of state capture. The commission will continue to hear SARS-related evidence from Ethel Williams. I am Tsepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza says he is happy that raw sewage from the Sibilgeng water wastewater treatment facility is no longer spilling into the Val River. Mabuza was on a routine visit to the Mfuleni municipality to assess the pace of service delivery, including the cleanup project at the facility. This was part of the Val River Rehabilitation Project, which kicked off in 2019 after the river was polluted by raw sewage from pump stations in the municipality. Debamukobo has more. For almost three years now, the raw sewage from pump stations in the Infulene municipality has been flowing into the Val River. And this has affected areas including Sebukeng, Ferenacheng and Sharfil, among others. On Tuesday, Deputy President David Mabuza visited the Sebukeng Wastewater Treatment Facility to assess government's efforts to clean up the river. And after a tour of the facility, Mabuza says slowly but surely they turn in the tide. Remember last time when we were here, this module 6 was not working. They were still under construction and I'm happy today to see this module working. That means we have increased our capacity to deal with sewer. The only remaining hurdle that we must jump is to go and block the blocked pipelines in the settlement where people are staying so that sewer can come into the treatment plant. I'm very impressed. Now, the water that is going here is being cleaned and is going back into the Val River. The cleaning exercise campaign of the Val River has proved to be a costly exercise. In 2019, the South African National Defense Force members were brought in to help. The work stalled after 350 million rent set aside for the project ran out. But now Mabuza said they will soon meet with the National Treasury for more funds on the outstanding work. We are taking a meeting with the Minister, the Premier and Minister of Cooperative Governance. The four of us will meet uh, also with the Finance Minister Mboweni, MEC for Human Settlement here. And we are going to table a work plan that will determine exactly how long are we going to take to unblock the blockages because now we're fine in terms of the treatment. We can treat whatever sewer, the capacity is enough. We have got only one module that is working there instead of six or seven modules. So capacity is more than enough. The Infulene Executive Mayor Reverend Gif Moerano on the other hand says after stopping the raw sewage from spilling into the Val River, they are now focusing on and blocking the sewage pipes in the municipality and the surrounding areas. The water that you see here can now flow back into the river. It's clean water. So we, are, we have now moved from the situation where raw sewer was flowing into the river. So I'm very pleased and the commitment, the deputy president said, we must now set the timeline to unblock the 280,000 kilometers of pipe work in the area here. But we have seen now we have almost 34 megawatts of water that is now flowing. In the past, it was below 20. It tells that if we can actually put pressure 
on our contractors who are on site to make sure that they unblock the network. Mabuza's visit to the area was part of the work of the Interministerial Committee on Service Delivery and the commitment made by the Deputy President in the National Council of Provinces and the National Assembly to ensure that service delivery challenges in the Infulene municipality are addressed. The Deputy President was accompanied by Houghton Premier David Makura, the Minister of Human Settlements, Water and Sanitation, Lindy Wesisulu, the Deputy Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Obed Papela, and Houghton MEC for Human Settlements, Lebuha Maile. I am Debu Mokobo in Johannesburg. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. At 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. An independent review panel in the United States has raised concerns around the information released by AstraZeneca on Monday showing its COVID-19 vaccine was 79% effective in preventing symptomatic illness. A statement released in the early hours of Tuesday by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, or NAID, pointed to concern expressed by an independent panel of experts that AstraZeneca may have included outdated information from a trial conducted in the U.S., Chile and Peru. The NIAID has now urged AstraZeneca to work with the Data and Safety Monitoring Board to review the efficacy data and ensure the most accurate, up-to-date efficacy data is made public as quickly as possible. Shown Barspeace reports. AstraZeneca's announcement Monday that results of its largely U.S.-based trial showed its vaccine was 79% effective against COVID-19 a much higher figure than observed in other trials, and that it was 100% effective against severe or critical illness and hospitalization. That immediately raised the prospects that the British drug maker would soon apply for emergency use authorization in the United States. But the latest statement from the National Institutes of Health says the information put forward by AstraZeneca might have provided an incomplete view of the efficacy data something echoed by the chief medical advisor to the U.S. president, Dr. Anthony Fauci, on ABC News's Good Morning America. The Data and Safety Monitoring Board, when they saw that press release, they got concerned and wrote a rather harsh note to them and with a copy to me saying that, in fact, they felt that the data that was in the press release were somewhat outdated and might, in fact, be misleading a bit and wanted them to straighten it out. On the basis of that, we put out the release that you just showed Mm -hmm. that essentially Mm -hmm. told the company they better get back with the DSMB and make sure the correct data get put into a press release. In their own statement, AstraZeneca says it will engage with the Data Safety Monitoring Board, but that the interim results published Monday were based on a data cutoff of February 17th, and that their preliminary assessment of the primary analysis was consistent 
with the interim analysis. This was Dr. Fauci a day earlier speaking about the U.S. trial. So right at the efficacy data, good results. 78.9% vaccine efficacy at preventing symptomatic disease. Importantly, there, with regard to severe or critical disease requiring hospitalization, there was zero in the vaccine arm and five in the placebo arm. The good news is also that there was comparable efficacy across ethnicity and age, namely a very good efficacy, 79.9% in participants who are 65 years of age or older. But with the latest developments, its path towards FDA emergency use authorization appears less clear. Listen to Andy Slavitt, a White House senior advisor on COVID-19 response. It's one of the reasons why it's so important. People ask, why does the FDA take time to do their work? People also ask, um, why do you make such a point of emphasizing the FDA's independence? And why do you make such an important point about emphasizing the transparency? It's because the science is going to be what the science is. Uh, the, the results are going to be what the results are going to be. And the American public will need to hear that directly. And it's important that they have great confidence in what comes out of our, our independent scientific agencies. South Africa concluded the sale of its AstraZeneca stockpile this week after its rollout was paused in early February when a study showed it had reduced efficacy in preventing infection of the COVID-19 variant first discovered in the country known as B1351. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. It's 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. The COVID-19 crisis has hit small and medium enterprises especially hard, causing massive job losses in Namibia and other economic scares. Among these less noticeable but also serious is the rise in market power among uh, dominant firms as they emerge even stronger while smaller rivals fall away. New research shows that key indicators of market power are on the rise such as the markup of prices over marginal cost or the concentration of revenue among the four biggest players in a sector. Cargo haulage by Kenya's standard gauge railway faces another hurdle because containers that are double stacked on wagons cannot be screened by scanners. Double stacking of containers was seen as a solution after the port of Mombasa experienced a shortage of wagons. About 550 wagons were damaged by six giant cranes at the port last November. Zimbabwe boasts big earnings from tobacco each year, but these findings hide the true picture growers are sinking in debt. The industry is not attracting new farmers and the country is not earning as much as it should. According to the Tobacco Industry Marketing Board last year, Zimbabwe earned around 460 million US dollars from 183 million kilograms of tobacco sold. But growers say this money is not all landing in the pockets of farmers. 
Labour Federation of South Africa Kusatu has told Parliament's ad hoc committee to amend Section 25 of the Constitution that failure to address land reform is a ticking time bomb that nations cannot afford. Kusatu made a submission during virtual public hearings on the 18th Constitution Amendment Bill to amend Section 25 of the Constitution to expropriate land without compensation. It criticized what it calls a populist opposition to the bill. Kusatu Parliamentary Liaison Officer Matthew uh, We think that the, the reaction opposition to the bill is not helpful. It's hysterical. It's often devoid of facts. It's, to be honest, it's engaging cheap populism. We think in essence, Chair, it seeks to preserve the legacy of colonialism and apartheid. It does not help provide for a rational debate when you actually need calm and rational engagement. It's not hysteria. And Chair, the alternative to not dealing with land reform is a ticking time bomb, which you cannot afford as a nation. And in fact, that would be unconstitutional not to deal with land issues. Former partner at Bain, South Africa, Ethel Williams, has told the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg that Bain paid just over 203,000 US dollars a year to two performing artists for strategic advice on procurement and introduction to political leaders. Bain is alleged to have assisted in bringing revenue service SARS to its knees with its restructuring advice during Tom Moyani's tenure. According to Williams Ambro Bright, a company that was co owned by film producer Duma Ganluven, and musician Mandaganuzu received the highest fee, which was usually received or rather reserved for former CEOs and public officials, ex-public officials, to give advice. Williams says Bain was also expected to pay a success fee as part of the contract. And this concludes my economic update. Africa, rise and shine. Our sports update up next with uh, Figile Lingwati. Figile Lloyd Harris and now um, in, in uh, Miami and uh, with um, the name just eludes me right now. From oh, yes, the UK. He's from, he's from, he, um, he always, like he's, he's, he'll be playing the, more of the yes. tennis tournaments for, for this season because it's tennis season. So he'll be moving from one tournament to another. So he's, he's, he will be there for some time in America. Andy Murray. Yeah. That's the name. Okay. Give us an update. First up in our sports update, it's football news. South Africa's national football team, Bafana Bafana coach Muli Finzeki, wants the plans to repay their faith shown in them by the fans. For him, it's all about doing the country proud. Finzeki's plans have been thrown into disarray by European clubs refusing to release players, but also his preparations in terms of what to expect from Thursday's opponents, Ghana. Finzeki says they want to do well for the country. And we are all looking forward to better that position. And better in that position, it means we have to qualify. We are not going to entertain better, bettering uh, our last position if we don't qualify. And I think it will be a, a very disappointment from all of us if we don't achieve the qualification first, if we don't achieve doing well in the AFCON. So um, as a team, as individuals, 
we have a buy-in into what we want to, to do with Bafana Bafana because uh, opportunity to coach and opportunity to, to play for Bafana Bafana comes once in your lifetime. And uh, I think uh, Ronwen and Tyson and the rest of the guys, one day they want to sit back and tell their children that when I was with Bafana Bafana, this is what I achieved. The Confederation of African Football CAF has disqualified Chad from the 2022 Africa Cup of Nations after the government disbanded the Football Federation this month. That means scheduled qualifiers against Namibia, match number 106th, and Mali, match number 130th, for the qualifiers have been cancelled. AfricanNews.com The Confederation of African Football said it ordered Chad to forfeit two games scheduled for this week as three nil losses. Chad was to host Namibia on Wednesday and play at Mali on Sunday. The team was already out of contention to qualify for the final tournament in Cameroon next January and February. The CAF decision is one of the first taken under its new leadership. General Secretary Veron Mosengo Omba left FIFA to run the Cairo-based governing body after South African billionaire Patrice Mosefpe was elected CAF president on March 12th. FIFA could now suspend Chad from World Soccer. FIFA statutes allow for members' federations to be suspended when government are believed to have interfered in the independence of elected soccer officials. In rugby news, the Zimbabwe Rugby Union ZRU have started preparations for the sports consumption, announcing an expanded squad in preparation for the qualifiers for Olympic Games and the 2023 World Cup qualifiers. A total of 17 medium and high-risk sport codes, including rugby, were last Friday given the green light to resume activities by the Sports Commission. The ZRU received permission to resume the domestic competition and training camps for the National 15s, the Sables and the 7th Cheetah sides. The Sables have lined up home and away test matches against Zambia and Namibia for May and June to give the side some much-needed game time after a blank year in 2020. The Sables are also expected to feature in the Rugby Africa Cup, which is the first stage of the 2023 World Cup qualifiers. On the other hand, the Cheetahs are set to take part in an Olympic Games qualifying round known as the Repechage. The Repechage, which is for the runners-up for the Continental Qualifiers, is set for Monaco from the 19th to the 21st of June. In netball news, Dr. Elise Jordan, head coach of the South Africa's under-21 netball team, says she's disappointed with the cancellation of the 2021 Netball World Youth Cup. Last week, the International Netball Federation and the INF announced its decision to cancel the Netball World Youth Cup, which was scheduled to take place from the 2nd to the 11th of December in Fiji. The difficult decision was made by the INF board at their meeting on the 12th of March, taking into consideration all the risks related to hosting the event during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic with the safety and well-being of participants and the Fijian population at the heart of the decision. South Africa's baby proteas were set to compete at the World Cup. We are obviously very, very disappointed and it was probably one of the most difficult things I had to do is when I had to share the news with these young players, they are the future stars for South Africa and um, they've been working so hard and we've been coming together as a group so nicely and there's some good things that started to happen for us as a team. Committee NGNOC has fully funded and supported Gambia's participation for the Manchester Para Powerlifting World Cup. 
The decision is to ensure more Gambian athletes qualifiers for the Tokyo Paralympic Games set to take place later this year. The GNOC paid for the team's accommodation, tickets and allowance for the Manchester trip. GNOC also bid farewell to the Gambia team set to leave for Manchester today where they will join the rest of the world in a crucial qualifier. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magaza, technical producer Didimalo Makao, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Stimela with a song titled Where Did We Go Wrong? Goodbye and keep safe. <laughs>